0: Amen. please be seated Jesus wept this verse is purported to be the shortest verse of the Bible I'm not sure in Greek there's an extra word there but it would be my choice for memorization for sure if I were back at Sunday school maybe even these days more so it's very concise But the better translation would be, Jesus burst into tears. So that the verb, dakru'o, would have better differentiated the sincerity and immediacy of Jesus' expression here from the choreographed hysteria, Clio also translated wept, which the ritual mourners were being called to do all around him. We are left... With a picture here of various degrees of compassion, which is true to the letter, but not to the spirit of the text. I'll dig into these words a little more. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, the word is Clio, and it's the the ritual mourning and wailing and weeping that people of the Near East still do when someone has died. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, same word, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. We'll get to these. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. He bursts into tears here. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Our translators have further let us down with these two other words, moved in his spirit, whatever on earth that means. Groaned was good enough for the King James Version, but we postmoderns have to tidy things up emotionally. The whole ESV, if you like, is a very much sterilized version of the King James Version. Pity. The word embriomai is derived from the snorting of a bull and packs a lot of punch in with the pity indignation, maybe. Jesus snorted like a bull, might jump off the page a little. But there's a bit of rage in there, like a bull pawing its feet, ready to attack, maybe one that has already been speared with something. Jesus' reaction comes from the gut, is my point, as does the violent agitation, which the second word, troubled, connotes. It means literally, Violent agitation. We are dealing with the solar plexus in the biblical text, not the cerebellum of the received translation. With the heat of the moment, not the cool recollection of the morning after. And although I've dragged us up the back stairs via the service entrance in the scullery, in opening this talk with word studies, a thing we're always warned not to do, I've got to the heart of the place where I need to be because the depth of Jesus' emotion is the key to a lot more here than the gist of this passage as it sits on the page. It's the key to the door for all of us, to whatever place it is that Jesus himself is preparing to go by way of a 40-day delay, which is the place to which we all, as coheres with him, are expecting to go as well, and upon which we are pinning a lot of our hopes if not our delayed gratification. It's not just the intensity of the feeling well then, it's the feeling itself. we said that Jesus is more angry than sad when he is confronted with death. What makes him angry? Death? Let's pursue it. The death of a friend? It's pointed out in a lengthy discourse by George MacDonald that Jesus should know better than to be angry At the death of a friend or moved in any way. And in fact, he's not moved at all by Lazarus' death because he knows very well the joys that Lazarus has been enjoying. If anything, Jesus is upset at having to drag Lazarus away from that and put him back in the middle of this world. If anything, Jesus is weeping because those gathered there are weeping. And he's asking himself, why are they weeping? The answer he comes up with, according to MacDonald, is they, too, lack the faith, the assurance that all will be well, indeed is well, with their friend. He's in a better place, as we hear said so often in these circumstances. So, death is no big deal. Look beyond it, buck up, tough it out, have faith. Easier said than done, Lord. And I think the Lord knows that. Jesus himself has to die after all, but it's for only a few days. Death, then, just to taste death, remains a problem. The experience of death, we have to reason, still presents itself as antithetical to God's project, which is life, abundant life. Now, what do we know of death? If all we know of death is what we know from this side, that's not a lot. Death seems to have the last word, which is no word at all, but a terrible silence, a numbness, mute, which nothing disturbs. No word, indeed, comes back over the chasm to us, beckon us forward to join the happy throng on the other side. We listen, and we listen hard, When we're presented with death we hear only our own beating heart and yet here we are facing maybe the greatest mystery that confronts us because of its existential force. The actuarial tables assure us that not one of us is getting out of this place alive. We're dealing with death every day whether we like it or not and yet even with the verbosity of our biblical texts about so many wonderful things, when it comes to what awaits us beyond death, our texts are uncannily terse. Well, whatever death is doing in God's good creation and whatever the Redeemer is doing about it, the fact remains, as we know who have looked ahead, that this last enemy does not have the last word. Death itself will die. So what does that leave us to do when we're confronted with death? Wish it away, put it to one side? How do we now learn to live as if death were nothing? Or is that what we're being asked to do? Are we being asked not at the same time to live and love as if life were something? If not everything, at least a very special something. Because when you live as if death were nothing... It tends to make life on this side of a greatly diminished value as well. And a thing which can be made into something even more than what it is by the confidence with which we can look ahead to what it might be. And to something which is seriously diminished by living this life as if this life is all we've got. We've got to get everything we can out of this life before we get out of here. When our view of life, in other words, life this side, is delimited delimited by a sense of the ultimacy of our own mortality. It transforms our grasp of spiritual realities from a firm hold into a death grip, a stranglehold. And yet if we simply treat this world as a home that is not our home, a place through which we are just passing through, a lot of this life becomes very diminished indeed. Now, there's something very heroic to the existentialist worldview for sure. The worldview that says, this is it, so make the best of it. There is an admirable and unflinching honesty to it, or would be, if it were true. The problem is that there is indeed pie in the sky by and by. And we get not just a whiff of it from time to time, we get to have a hand in making and baking this pie, too. Like children gathered around our mother's shoulder, standing on stools or stepladders, we want to participate, to be co-creators. We are eternal beings, made for eternity. And yet, here on this side, we're given this life with all its limitations to make of what we can, And this desire to make of this limited reality that we have everything to be all and to do everything that God has planted in our hearts to want to do within the limitations of earthly reality, of creaturely life, set us up for that poignant thing which is this life, this side of heaven. For the sense of the child is that all is right with the world, despite all evidence to the contrary, that this is not the case. The child's sense is that everything that is promised in this beautiful world will at some point, this side of glory, be delivered, that every promise will come true. It's just a matter of time, and maybe just the time between today and tomorrow. And there is something better and truer and more accurate of a child's grasp of reality, that whatever God has promised that is good, he will deliver, than any amount of last-minute stoicism that the sight of death hardens our hearts and beats us into accepting, even in the name of the gospel. Now, it would help, yes, to know what lies beyond, but maybe it wouldn't. It may be more than we can ask or imagine, not less. Whatever it is, I hope it will move us, too, in the solar plexus and not just in the cerebellum. In the meantime, the story through history and an anticipation of the history to come for Jesus serves also as an analog. Death and life after death for spiritual growth, for how the Holy Spirit takes sinners and makes them saints. The answer is very simple. He kills us first, or rather, sin pays a wage, and the wage is death. The flesh dies. The spirit gives life. Resurrection only works with dead men and women. God wants to work his restoration, his way. And his way is to make us into God's. And he'll do it on his terms, because our terms are far lower than what he can deliver us. And God wants God's idea of what the divine looks like, not ours. We'll settle for less, for something that we can keep under our wraps. God has new use for that. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot Please God. Flesh cannot be educated or reprogrammed or persuaded or wooed into acquiescence. The flesh does not provide the raw material, ultimately, with which God will make the new creation. The flesh can only be killed. Then God starts with a fresh sheet, a blank canvas, and works the way he wants with the same elements with which he set this creation into being at the end of the day, with life, with embodiment, with all the beautiful things with which he's surrounded now. There's the mystery. There's the paradox. But the first strategic step we can take to the victorious life in the spirit of which the Bible speaks is surrender. Surrender, meaning the daily dying, putting to death of the false self, that we fabricate with the brick and brack that our creation has left around us and that our culture gives us to make into our analog for heaven. So frail, so contingent, so invisible because we cannot see what it is to be on the other side, death ends up having its hold on us as ultimate reality. So the way to get beyond death is to die to the reality that has its hold on us here while we are still alive. For the sake of all those we pull down with us, the 50% of this planet, for instance, who are not permitted to be all that they can be on this side of creation. The best that we can do on this side is to die to all the power, the privileges, and the prestige which those groups of which I am a member consider to be part of that to which we are entitled and to begin to surrender the goodies of this life which we have amassed as an analog to heaven and let God come in and begin to create heaven on earth as he would do it. It comes through our surrender my brothers and sisters, especially my brothers, surrender of the things that we take for granted as ours and the things that we hoard in the hope that these grave goods will somehow insulate us against death. They will not. The key to having eternal life is not to pass through this life and leave all its faults in place, but to begin the work of dying to all the faults of this life, the false self that we have incarnated here. And let the model of real life in Jesus, a life based on living and living by dying, to take its hold in us, to give up the life in the flesh, which is death, and live that life in the Holy Spirit which in so many ways will surprise us and in so many ways will take us to where we do not want to go by a path on which we do not travel, to leave us in a place which, when we are there, we will never wish to leave. Amen. Please stand.